Welcome to Writer's Digest Presents. Hosted by the editors of Writer's Digest, this monthly podcast features conversations with writing and publishing experts whose insights will help ignite your creative vision, hone your skills, build your platform, and get your work out into the world. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Writer's Digest Presents. I am content editor Michael Woodson, and Happy New Year to all of our listeners and writers out there. I'm so excited to be bringing you the first episode of our third season of Writer's Digest Presents and the first episode of 2024. If you're new to the pod, Writer's Digest Presents is a mostly monthly podcast with author interviews, writing advice, editorial roundtables, and more. So it's the early days of 2024, and with every new year comes new goals and new resolutions. For creative people like us, sometimes it's a blank canvas, but other times our goals and resolutions are carried over because, well, writing is hard, and not everything can happen quickly or in one calendar year. So to start the year off right, we're looking back at some of the writing advice we were given in 2023 to help you focus on what you want your writing to be in 2024. So let's jump right in. At the beginning of the year, Editor-in-Chief Amy Jones and I sat down with best-selling author Cherie Dimeline to discuss her book Venko and how she writes charismatic villains. Listen here to how she explains the way she offers readers necessary backstory while avoiding the dreaded info dump. When I'm writing a book, I feel very comfortable in that space. And I always uh, defer to the characters. It's, it's something that uh, features in, I think, most of my work where I need to get information across. I hand it over to the characters. So, mm-hmm. um, um, it, it, so for example, um, in, in my community, um, we introduce ourselves. We, and we introduce ourselves um, by who we are at, at that moment because we are you know, changing, evolving people, yeah. nothing's sort of stagnant. Um, and so you, you don't tell people who they are. Um, you offer them the space for them to be able to come into it and tell you, you know, what's important to them, um, how they identify, uh, who they belong to, um, all of those things in that space. And I thought it's such a beautiful way. It's, you know, if we're really listening, people tell us who they are, um, um, all the time. And I, I, I think we just need to be better listeners in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. But so I hand that over to the to the characters. It was something in one of my earlier works, The Marrow Thieves. Uh, I called them coming to stories where, you know, it's this post-apocalyptic world. And, you know, we know writing those kinds of stories, there's so much background you have to get in and you don't want to do the info dump. You don't want to be the guy who's like, here's this great story. Now let's pause for 23 pages so I can explain how we get here. Give it to the characters. So, so first of all, you need to really you you need to know your characters, and if you're not sure about them, you'll get there through this process. Mm-hmm. So you got to trust in this process. Um, make sure that they have their voice, um, and then allow them to tell you from their point of view. And if you write it from their point of view, um, it's going to be different. It's going to be nuanced. It's going to be colored by their experience and their perspective, which is interesting. Which is how we learn from other people anyway outside of books um and and so so that was that was um and that was easy for me i and i don't mean easy technically or craft wise i mean just in terms of getting information across let's have a conversation let's let's have like you know in one scene let's let's put them all in a closed bar and just do a ceremony that consists of drinking all of the gin and vodka that (laughs) they can find and see what happens right so they're they're going to have conversations. We're going to learn things and it's going to be hilarious and it's going to be 
uh, messy. And, and that's the good stuff. That's the interesting stuff. So you don't have to, um, I always try and, you know, remember, okay, I have to trust my readers. Like I don't need to mm-hmm. lay this out ABC. Mm-hmm. I can give them people they love. Um, and then they'll want to hear what they have to say. And then, so just sort of, you know, give those jobs to your characters. All right, that was Cherie Dimaline discussing how she listens to her characters to get the right information to her readers. Next up, we have author Lydia Kiesling, who Amy and I interviewed for her new best-selling novel, Mobility. Here, Lydia discusses how her experience writing her first novel differed drastically from writing her second, and her advice on how to find a writing routine that works for you. I have been like oppressed by the sort of butt in the chair um, axioms so much. And I mean, I do think there is definitely value in cultivating the ability to sometimes sit down and write when you don't feel like writing that yes, is very important. Um, But with the golden state, I had a timeline that was very firm. It was just like Mm -hmm. an economic Mm -hmm. timeline. Like I, my family could afford for me to, work only part-time doing like very lowly paid editorial work, Mm. you know, half the day and then half the day trying to write this book, you know, for a year and really not even a year. Like that was already, there was a lot of creative math um, involved there. But so I was kind of like, well, and I felt so much just guilt that I was able to do Mm. that or, and another thing is that, you know, I was writing that when I had a toddler. And so I was paying, so the paid work that I was doing almost covered her daycare. And so I was just like, I am throwing money away, like for childcare that I'm, you know, who knows what will happen, you know, and there's a lot of like toxic, like um, internalized, like misogyny and so many things to unpack there, which I'm now mostly over and I'm all the way (laughs) over them, but um, at least regarding like paying for childcare when you're not necessarily like doing something. (laughs) Um, But I, so I felt like I had to work every day. I had a spreadsheet. I was like, this is the day, this is the date. This is the starting word count, ending word count. Mm. And then if I didn't write, I had to like put the reason so I would, you know, have stretches where it was just like the date and zero and then like why. And so it'd be like dent disappointment or like child homesick or sometimes it was just like I couldn't. Like I sat there and I like scrolled yeah. Twitter and then I would really like just hate myself um, mm. for those days. You know, I did eventually I did finish the book like within the time horizon, but it it just felt like terrible um, mm. a lot of the time. Mm. And then. I did a lot of flail, but I I felt very strong pressure to reproduce that experience when I started a new book. Um, a because just for financial reasons, you're like, yeah. okay, well, I need to finish a book again, so someone will hopefully give me money for it. You know, I have this momentum. If I don't do something with this momentum, I will squander it, and nobody will ever read anything. So I made, you know, I'm lucky that I have like a judicious agent. Or and who was just kind of so I would like send her pages and be like maybe you could sell this like this is like ten pages what if what if someone was like this could be a book and she was like no (laughs) she was like you're not Stephen King or like you have to actually like write the book and then I will try to sell it but you're doing great you know keep keep going Um, so I did a lot of flailing and then we moved and just like Mm. I had another child um, and every. I just wasn't writing as much. Like mm-hmm. a lot of other stuff was intervening. I finally kind of got into a rhythm after we moved and 
I was like, okay, maybe, you know, I have like 30,000 words of something like this could be a book. And then the pandemic happened. Um, And then I just, I didn't work on it for like, Mm -hmm. you know, the first stretch, it was like, I didn't work on it for five months. I didn't open the document for five months because I had like little kids at home, Mm -hmm. you know, it was a complete shit show. And then I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go, I went and rented a cheap cabin. I stayed for three days. I opened the document. I wrote 10,000 words because by Mm -hmm. then I was desperate to write. I hadn't written in so long. And, and then I waited seven months after that. And then I did the same thing. And that second time was when I finally, I was like, now I have momentum. I know what's happening. And I like went away a few more times, but it was very, like, I did not write every day. I did Mm -hmm. not write like, and so now I'm just, I, I'm, I'm trying to like remember that I do enjoy writing every day and I it's nice to have a practice I don't want to always be writing in these like weird desperate scenarios where I'm like having a composting toilet and leaving my family (laughs) but I could not have done this book without that and I will always be grateful for that Mm. time and experience um so yeah like you just have to work with the conditions you have and so many writers I know are do are like there are writers who just have full-time jobs, mm-hmm. caregiving responsibilities, you know, of all different kinds, sometimes multiple directions and generations. And they're also writing and they're like, you know, doing exercises, like, you know, yeah. like helping their communities. <laughs> There's people who are just juggling so much and yeah. I, it's just, but it doesn't really make sense to compare yourself to anyone because you have to write at your own sort of pace and, um, but yes, you have to balance that with like, some days you just have to be like, okay, no, you must open the document. Yeah. You must try and write something, even if it's yeah. just like a few words. Mm-hmm. I, I think I'm going to use that. I'm going to internalize that because <laughs> so I wrote quite a bit for NaNoWriMo last year and I haven't touched the document since. It's been swirling in my mind and I've been thinking about it for months. So I'm going to, I'm hoping I'm going to be like you. And when I open it next, the words yes. will just flow out. Yeah. You'll be desperate <laughs> to. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And it's been, it's been yeah. marinating this whole time. That is, I, I mean, totally yeah. believe that. It's so part of it. That was Lydia Kiesling on writing routines. Now I'm sure you've heard enough on the subject of AI, right? But last year, Jane Friedman's experience with someone stealing her work using AI software took the publishing world by storm. I was lucky enough to chat with Jane about her experience, and here she discusses what she'd like to see change about AI software and what authors can try to do now to safeguard themselves and their work. I would like to see companies like Amazon um, put protections in place to avoid the blatant abuses um i would like to see authors all creative people's moral rights respected um so giving them the choice of Mm -hmm. whether or not they want their work informing these models or used in any way i think they ought to be given they they shouldn't have to opt out um it shouldn't be an automatic opt-in process Mm -hmm. right so that's kind of what i mean by moral rights which are stronger in in the eu unfortunately, than they are in the U.S. I'd like to see greater transparency with the companies that develop these models about how they were trained. Um, you know, it's, I remember back when Wikipedia was considered a scourge. And, Seriously, uh, I've actually been thinking about that a lot with this conversation. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And, you know, it kind of was not particularly sure. trustworthy in the beginning, <laughs> but it found its footing and yeah. everything at Wikipedia now is is sourced for yeah. the most part. 
And if it's not sourced, it's called out right there mm -hmm. for you to see. Um, so I feel like we're going to have more of that surrounding these tools, mm -hmm. one hopes. Yeah. Um, there's got to be some legislation. Um, and I don't want to see these AI companies be the only ones who profit, obviously. Totally. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons that authors and other unions and guilds are speaking out now. They're trying to get mm -hmm. ahead of this before uh, too much damage gets done. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of protection at the yeah. moment. And that's that's why I'm trying so hard to spread the word. Yeah. Um, you know, there's the trademark issue, which provides very narrow protection. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean, people share the same name. <laughs> so right. you can't... I, my, my dad's name is my name. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. like, if you both want to publish books, that needs to be possible. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if you do get a trademark for the name that you publish under, it's, it, by definition, it's going to have to be very narrow. Yeah. And you can't infringe on anyone else's rights if you get a trademark, um, like prevent them from doing what they would ordinarily do. So I don't think that's like the ultimate, you know, mm -hmm. solution here, but I do think it offers something that can be done. And I'm certainly considering it for my mm -hmm. work and not necessarily because of the books, but because I do so much mm -hmm. online and yeah. my name could be used in countless ways that I don't consent to for online materials. Yeah. And so I want, I want to have some recourse um, because copyright isn't it. The current laws, current copyright laws um, are starting to get behind mm -hmm. where they need to be. And I'm not saying that we need stronger copyright protection necessarily. I'm just saying that AI, no one knows what copyright protections should be related to AI. The laws were written before anyone could really right. conceive of the possibilities. Right. So I think it's going to have to evolve in some way that offers greater protection. Absolutely. That was Jane Friedman on the use of AI. Now this one's for all of our genre fans out there. What do you do when you love fantasy and you also love romance and you also love mystery and you want to write in all of these genres? Well, why not combine them? Here, author Rob Hart talks with me and Amy Jones about his novel, The Paradox Hotel, and why he loves to combine genres. So one of the things that was interesting to me was how the, this book sort of blended genres a little bit. You know, it's kind of part sci-fi, part mystery, crime. And I wondered what blending those genres allowed you to do with the story or to get away with in the story that sticking to one clear genre would have prohibited or mm. made more challenging? I, it lets you get away with a lot more, which has always been the thing that I loved about doing that, about combining genres, is that all of a sudden your, your, your toy box gets so much bigger. All of a sudden mm -hmm. you've got so mm -hmm. much more stuff to play with. And I knew that I, I wanted to sort of have both fantastical elements, but also make it feel kind of grounded, make it feel mm -hmm. like, okay, this is a whodunit. Like I'm going to, I'm going to sort of adhere mm -hmm. to these rules that if you're really, really paying attention, you might be able to figure it out, or you might be able to guess who the bad guy is at the end. But at the same time, I wanted to sort of shove in all this other stuff. Uh, and again, like that comes from me just wanting to have the, the absolute best time possible. Yeah. Um, what what was funny is my my next book, which is coming out in June, uh, it's called Assassins Anonymous, and it's about a, a basically like a John Wick level hitman who gets into a uh, like a recovery program for killers. And 
it was it was weird, you know, after the warehouse and Paradox Hotel, like sort of leaving that that cross genre spec sci-fi thing and going into mm-hmm. just a contemporary thriller. And there were so many times my instinct was to push it further and do something weirder and start bringing like sci-fi elements into it. And I actually kind of relish that challenge of like, no, this is going to be grounded. Like this is something that can happen right now. And those limits can be fun sometimes because they push you to be a little bit more creative. They push you to, to work a little harder, but I'm not going to lie. I, I, I did kind of miss the ability to just do literally anything I wanted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was Rob Hart on the fun of combining genres. Now, something that's important for all authors to consider is self-editing. But how about the difference between editing and revising? Here, I sat down with professional editor and author Tiffany Yates-Martin on the importance of self-editing and how to know the difference between editing and revising. The way that most authors, I think, will start to, because we don't teach how to self-edit, the way that most authors will go about it is they finish the end, and then they go back to the beginning and they start going through and you get sidetracked on this sentence isn't saying mm-hmm. what I want it to. This word is not as beautiful as it could be. Oh, I need to fix this. But later it also has this other element I need to remember <laughs> to fix. And so you get lost in the yeah, story. I'm feeling personally attacked. Right. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but it's common. I mean, we don't know any other way to do it. And totally. it, it makes logical sense. But that's sort of jumping right into revising without doing the editing Mm. first. And the editing is what a professional editor does. But as I said, it's also what every author should have as a skill set. And that means, so the the easy way to think of it is editing is assessing, Mm. revising is addressing. So editing is where you look at what you have on the page and see how closely it matches what your vision is, your intentions, how effectively it's conveying the story, um, whether all of the elements are in place in a way that draws the reader in and keeps them Mm -hmm. hooked and maintains momentum and all the things we want to do as authors. Once you know what is and is not on the page, what is and is not working as well as it could, then you go back and revise. Mm -hmm. But if you just jump in, it's like, I'm big on the metaphor. It's like starting to build a house without a blueprint, you know, without looking at what it's supposed to look like. You have to see what you actually have. That was Tiffany Yates-Martin on the difference between editing and revising. Finally, Amy and I ended the year on a high note, chatting with author Byron Lane about his new novel, Big Gay Wedding. Big Gay Wedding is a masterclass in writing dramedy. Listen here to Byron discussing the difference between writing drama and writing comedy, and how he blends the two in his stories. My my, uh, husband, Stephen Rowley, um, he's also an author of The Celebrants and The Gunkle, and uh, sometimes we can't help ourselves and we'll talk about writing at lunch and dinner. And, um, both of us do that kind of try to strike that balance of comedy and drama. And we both sort of write towards the drama because Mm. the comedy feels a little more natural for us. So, um, so some, like I'm trying to, I'm working on a new book now and I'm thinking, all right, where's the loss going to come from? Where's Mm -hmm. the, cause I already know like the, where the funny is going to come from. So I'm like, what's, what's going to happen to these uh, characters that that's going to um, tug on the emotions. So I, I do try to do that. And there's also this weird balance thing that I, I'm still learning how to juggle, um, especially after a star is bored. Sometimes this happens. The book came out, uh, people were kind and the reviews were lovely. And, uh, but I have some really smart writer friends who were like, Oh, do you notice how in this scene, you um, threw in this this moment in the middle of a really 
dramatic moment. And uh, in some sometimes you you take people out of the emotion with the comedy, or uh, you take people out of the comedy with the emotion. And so it's it's always a little bit of a of a juggling act. And I'm glad mm-hmm. you feel like um, it was smooth sailing through some of Big Gay Wedding. Yeah. Well, piggybacking off of that sort of in the process, has there ever been, did you ever decide to like rewrite something from a different emotional perspective? Like after you wrote it, were you like, I think maybe I want to play this more emotional or like, I'm thinking of this in a more comedic way. Hmm. That's a great question. Yeah. I think that definitely happens. I mean, I would put that under the umbrella of just like, this isn't working right. Sure. You know? And, uh, and then you, you, you start to look at, well, what, what choices can I make uh, that are different? So mm-hmm. maybe, uh, maybe this conversation doesn't take place in the barn. Um, or maybe this isn't a conversation between the mom and the neighbor. Maybe this is a conversation between the mom and the grandpa yeah. and mm-hmm. uh, who each have their own things going on. And mm-hmm. so sometimes it's kind of uh, tossing that stuff around. And then sometimes it's gut. So like there are some parts of Big Gay Wedding that uh, some of my smart uh, writer friends uh, suggested I cut but they made mm. me emotional. And so I was like, I just, I tried to hang on to them and, uh, and just try to trust like, all right, well, if it's making me feel something, I hope it'll make someone else feel something. That was Byron Lane on writing dramedies that make you laugh and cry. You can find all of this and more in all of our podcast episodes. So be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And I thought I'd close this episode with just discussing this year's resolutions. Personally, my goal is always to draft that novel, right? But I get so in my head about how long novels are, and I always feel really intimidated by the fact that I feel like I can't quite get a story out there that is that long, that sustains for that long. And so this year, I decided that my goal for now is to write one short story a month for 12 months, so that by the end of the year, I hopefully can look at it and say, look, Michael, you've got these stories in you. Just keep doing it. Keep working towards something, and eventually you will get to that longer piece, which will be your novel. That's it from us this month on Writer's Digest Presents. I am so excited to share more author interviews and writing advice all year long here on the podcast. But while you wait, you can always check us out on writersdigest.com or subscribe to the magazine, Writer's Digest Magazine, and check us out on social across all platforms at Writer's Digest.